If you have your Bibles, open with me to Mark chapter 11, please. Starting in verse 20. If I want to believe God for a $65 million jet, you cannot stop me. These are the words of Atlanta-based mega-pastor Creflo Dollar. In a video designed to raise funds for this $65 million jet, Pastor Dollar, which is not his real name, by the way, and his board members say that the church's current jet is 30 years old and it's basically unusable. So they need more money for a new jet. When confronted over this initial request by basically the entire Christian world via the internet, Creflo took the video down and they deleted the GoFundMe page. The next week, however, he doubled down on his jet aspirations. And he said that it was in fact the Lord's will that he have a jet. For his ministry purposes, of course. And that he was going to believe God for this jet. And he said that anybody who disagrees with him, anybody who challenges him, is really just part of Satan's attack. A demonic attack on his voice and on his faith and on his ministry. Creflo continued in the same sermon, If we find life on Mars, we'll need to preach the gospel to them too. And we'll need to believe God for a billion dollar space shuttle so that we can get the gospel to Mars. This is not part of a Babylon Bee article. He really said this. Reverend Dollar has since given up his fundraising efforts for the jet and he now flies commercial. Other preachers like Benny Hinn regularly claim to have faith that God can and will heal those who come to his crusades. T.D. Jakes, Joyce Myers, Joel Osteen, if you're in South America, Guillermo Maldonado, they all promise prosperity, blessings, health. Here, right here in Decatur, Alabama, Pastor Darius Creighton promises young men and women cars, strong finances, perfect health, if they will submit their lives to the Lord and have enough faith. All of these teachers, whether at home or abroad, they claim to be standing on the sure foundation of God's Word when they preach these things. One of their most beloved texts for their message of prosperity comes right from the very passage that we're going to be reading this morning. Mark chapter 11. And we'll read from verses 22 through 24 to begin. Mark chapter 11, verses 22 through 24. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Well, there you have it. Believe that whatever you ask in prayer is yours and you will have received it. It will be yours. When you come to a text like this, you can interpret it in one of two ways. You basically have two options. You can interpret it literally or you can interpret it some other way. So, for example, in another place in the book of Mark, when Jesus tells his disciples that they should eat of his flesh and drink of his blood, you can interpret that text in one of two ways. You can interpret it literally, or you can interpret it figuratively or metaphorically. When Jesus says that he is the gate, you can interpret that literally, that Jesus is a gate, or you can interpret that figuratively. When Jesus tells his disciples that they must be salt and light, you can interpret that literally and go about trying to figure out how to change your molecules into salt molecules and light ions, or... You can interpret that figuratively. 
When Jesus talks about a camel passing through the eye of a needle, you can interpret that literally. You can interpret that figuratively. Jesus' hyperbolic way to be saying, this is impossible. Now, all of these things must be interpreted seriously, regardless of whether you interpret them literally or figuratively. The same thing is true of today's text. When Jesus tells the disciples that they can command a mountain to be raised up from the earth and cast into the sea, you can interpret that teaching literally or some other way, like figuratively or hyperbole. You remember what hyperbole is, right? Hyperbole is when you state something in the form of an extreme exaggeration to prove a point, okay? So an example of that might be, if I'm going to take my wife out for dinner and I say, baby, I love you so much, you're such a great wife, and I'm going to treat you tonight, we can go and you can eat anywhere you want. Now, she knows that that doesn't mean we're going to go to China and eat authentic Chinese food, even though I said anywhere you want. She knows that we're not going to be eating escargot in Paris tonight under the Eiffel Tower, even though I said we can go anywhere you want. When my wife hears me say something hyper like hyperbole, like we can go anywhere you want. She doesn't understand that literal. What she knows is that I'm saying we can eat at Chili's. We can eat at Buffalo Wild Wings. We can eat at Red Lobster. We can eat at Logan's. We can even eat at Taco Bell. Not Arby's. So, is Jesus being literal here when he tells us we can command a mountain to rise up and be cast into the sea? Or is he employing hyperbole? Before we answer that, I think we need to remember where we are, what's going on in and around these verses. If you weren't here last week, what we talked about was Jesus cursing a fig tree. Jesus was on his way to the temple, and he saw a fig tree, and he saw that it appeared to be vibrant. It was in leaf. It appeared to have life, but when he went to approach it, it didn't have any fruit, and so he cursed it. And this was a picture of what was going on in the temple and basically in all of Israel, there was full of activity and what appeared to be life, but there was no real life. There was no real fruit being born. Therefore, the temple in Israel was under God's curse. The day after that, the day after the cleansing of the temple, the disciples walk back by the tree, and they see that the tree that Jesus cursed has actually withered. In less than 24 hours, it's actually withered. Peter seems amazed that the tree has withered in response to Jesus. Look at verses 20 and 21. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered, that is, he remembered the curse, and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Peter is stunned. I guess when you witness real miracles, uh, they never get old. You never stop being amazed by them. It's here that Jesus begins to talk about prayer and faith and forgiveness. Now, it's important for us to remember that Jesus is not explaining this parable in these verses. Jesus is not explaining the curse of the fig tree. Jesus is not explaining the curse on the temple or on Israel. What Jesus is doing here is something different. You see, Peter and the rest of the disciples, they see the fig tree and they're surprised, they're amazed. It's almost like they kind of can't really believe that it's happening. And Jesus responds to them by saying, why don't you believe? Why are you amazed? Don't you understand faith? Don't you understand the power of believing and praying and asking God to do something in faith? And so Jesus begins to talk about those things. And when Jesus talks about casting mountains into the sea, we're back to our original question. Is Jesus teaching on prayer to be taken literally? When he says that you can ask God for whatever you want and it will be given to you, does he literally mean whatever you want? Well, friends, I think the answer has got to be no. This cannot be taken literally. But it must be taken seriously. Jesus is using powerful imagery and exaggeration to drive home a point. In the same way that earlier when he was talking to us about the dangers of hell and the temptations of sin, he said, pluck out your eye, cut off your hand, do whatever you must do so that you don't go to hell. 
wasn't being literal, but he was being dead serious. But having said that, I don't want it to seem like I'm trying to get Jesus off the hook for saying something outlandish. Nor do I want it to seem like I'm trying to get us off the hook for not having enough faith. Maybe Jesus really is being literal and we're just faithless. Maybe he really does want us to literally pray prayers like pick up a mountain and throw it into the ocean. Well, I think what we can do is we can look at the rest of Scripture and ask if there's anything in the rest of Scripture that can help us make sense of this question. And I think that there is. If you remember that Jesus and the disciples, they're teaching in Jerusalem. And they're right by the temple, which sat on a mount. Jesus is resting in Bethany, which was on the Mount of Olives. Not too far off in the distance was the mountain of Herodias. So basically, between Jerusalem and the Dead Sea, the disciples and Jesus were surrounded by mountains. It would have been very natural for Jesus to use the imagery of mountains and the sea to make a point as he was communicating to these people that grew up in this area. Moreover, the language of moving a mountain was common for Jews in the day because it came from the Old Testament. In books like Ezekiel and Isaiah and Jeremiah, you see of God being spoken of as having the ability to rend a mountain in two, the ability to raise mountains up, the ability to raise mountains low, or to lay mountains low. Mountains are these impossibly large things that are so big we can't even begin to make sense of them. Even when you're climbing them, you think, oh, I'm almost at the top, and then three hours later you feel like you haven't even moved an inch. The ability to split a mountain in half or to lay it low is imagery used to communicate something that's impossible. So much so that when the scribes and the Pharisees and other religious leaders of the day were having a conversation or a debate about an especially difficult theological problem, they would say in order to solve this, it would be like having to raise up a mountain and cast it into the sea. Now, on top of all that background information, you have the fact that Jesus never really prayed anything like picking up a mountain and casting it into the sea. Now, he did calm a storm. He did do other things like that. But I think a better way to get at the meaning of the text this morning is to ask ourselves this question. What did the disciples understand Jesus to mean when he said this? Did the disciples understand Jesus literally or hyperbolically? Literally or figuratively? Well, did the disciples ever do anything remotely similar to praying, asking for a mountain to be raised up and cast into the ocean? I don't think so. Not literally. I could be wrong. Maybe there's a part of the Bible that I'm not familiar with. Remember, this mountain language is said in the context of prayer. Jesus is saying that if you have faith, you can pray like this, and you can trust that God will give you what you've asked for. Okay, well, did Jesus' disciples ever pray for anything like this? Maybe they did, but I don't see it in Scripture. But we do have in Scripture records of things that the disciples prayed for. I've chosen just three disciples, Jude, Peter, and Paul, because that's where the bulk of the praying in the New Testament comes from. But I've picked out some prayers of the disciples from Scripture to share with you the sorts of things that the disciples prayed for. The salvation of Israel, Romans chapter 10. Unity in the church, Romans chapter 15. The joy and peace of God's people, Romans 15. Rescue from unbelievers, Romans 15. To have a thorn removed from the flesh, 2 Corinthians 12. The perfection of the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 13. And I'm not going to keep giving you the scripture references. I'm just going to list the items. Wisdom and revelation from the church, for the church. That the Ephesians would be strengthened in their inner being. For boldness and clarity in declaring the gospel. That love would abound among the saints that God would open a door for the gospel amongst the unreached peoples, that Jesus' name would be glorified in the church, that hearts would be strengthened and that good deeds would increase, that God would be with his people. Mercy, peace, and love, that it would all be multiplied and that the gospel would be preached boldly. I think what you see in these prayers and in other prayers in the New Testament is that the disciples they did pray for mountains to be lifted up and cast into the sea. Just not literally so. They were praying things that are equally as impossible. That are equally as difficult. You remember earlier in the book of Mark where Jesus healed the paralytic? 
It's in Mark chapter 2. Let's just turn there real quick for a moment if you still have your Bibles out. It's in Mark chapter 2. If you remember the story, a paralytic is brought to Jesus for healing. But Jesus didn't heal him physically, not at first. Jesus forgave him of his sins. And the scribes, they were questioning Jesus in their hearts. They were saying, who does this guy think he is? He doesn't have the right to forgive sins. Look at verses 8 and 9. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? Which one's more difficult? To heal a man physically or to heal him spiritually? To take a man with broken legs and to fix him so that he can stand and walk again or to take a person who's dead in sin and who has a debt with God and to cancel that debt? Friends, what is more difficult, to move a mountain or to bring salvation to Israel as Paul prayed in chapter 15 of Romans? What's more difficult, to get a Mercedes or to have the door of the gospel opened up in the heart of a person who's dead in sin, who's at war with God? I think that every time that we pray and ask God to save a sinner, we are asking him to raise up a mountain and cast it into the sea. There is no greater miracle in existence than what takes place when God supernaturally moves in the heart of men to bring them to himself. There is no greater miracle than the miracle of conversion. So I don't think I'm trying to rescue you from praying impossible prayers. Quite the opposite. I want to challenge you and encourage you to obey Jesus. Obey what Jesus tells us to do. Pray big, massive, impossible, mountain-moving prayers. But I want to help you understand what Jesus means when he says for you to pray those kinds of prayers. Do you remember... Not that long ago in the book of Mark, Jesus told his disciples that what is impossible for man is possible for God. I want us to pray prayers that are impossible for us to do, but that are possible for God to do. That is what it means to raise up a mountain and cast it into the sea. And when we pray, we should pray prayers that will require as much power from God as these sorts of things. So when you pray and you ask God to remove someone from their sin... I think you're doing just that. Whenever you pray and you ask God to give unity to a church full of sinners like you and me, I think you're doing just that. When you pray and ask for God to give your teenager wisdom beyond their years, I think you're doing just that. When you pray and you ask God to save your marriage, which is as good as dead in the water, I think you're doing just that. You know, it wasn't long ago that a few members of this church began to pray these kinds of prayers. They prayed impossible prayers. They prayed that God would save this church from closing its doors. They prayed that God would restore health and vibrancy to this church. That he would build it up. And this was long before I was even part of the picture. If you had seen this church to some of our newer members and to some of our visitors, if you would have seen this church then, you would have recognized it as a prayer of impossibility, of raising up a mountain and being cast into the sea. Even today as I pray for this church, even this morning as I sat in my office and I thought about some of the members who weren't going to be here, some of them for good reasons, very good reasons, some of them for bad, sinful reasons, as I prayed for them, I felt like I was praying impossible prayers. I'm praying, Lord, please bring new people into this very old building. God, please give us the resources to do things that we don't have the resources to do. God, please teach us as people who could not be any more different to genuinely love one another. Lord, build us up into maturity as a church. Lord, protect the church from my own sins and my weaknesses and my inadequacies. 
These are all impossible prayers. But we pray them. And I pray them. Because God has commanded us to. Because Jesus tells us that we can pray whatever we want. And whatever we ask, we will receive it. Right? Let's go back to Matthew chapter, excuse me, Mark chapter 11. Look at verse 24. Eleven twenty-four. Therefore I tell you, <clears throat> whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. So I, I think we understand the mountain and the sea imagery here. I think, I think that's pretty persuasive. It's a hyperbolic illustration meant to encourage us to pray big, impossible prayers. But what about this whatever language here? We can pray for whatever we want. Well, I think I kind of already touched on this earlier when I gave you the example of hyperbole. When I tell my wife, we can go anywhere you want to go. Well, I think she understands that to mean that we can go anywhere that's reasonable. There's a qualification that's unspoken when I say that. I think the same thing is true of Jesus when he here tells us that we can ask for whatever we want from God. I think what he means is whatever we want, parentheses, as long as it's in line with the will of God. I don't think that Jesus means that we can ask for a Mercedes and he'll absolutely give it to us. I don't think that Jesus means that he'll give us the perfect wife or the perfect husband or the perfect career or a full 401k account and he'll absolutely give it to us. I don't think Jesus means that he will definitely heal us of anything that we ask to be healed of. But maybe I'm trying to read something into the text that's not there. I don't think so. But once again, I want to try to I want to try to persuade you of my position from Scripture. I think my best argument comes from three, three different things. The first thing is the way that Jesus prays. The way that Jesus prays. The second thing is the way that Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. And then the third thing is Jesus' own disciples as they teach on prayer. So let's take them one at a time. Number one, what Jesus teaches us to pray. So you can look at the Lord's Supper, excuse me, not the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Prayer, which we read this morning, where Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray. And listen to what he says. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, which just means may your name be glorified. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see that? When Jesus teaches us to pray, the first two things he teaches us to pray for are one, is one, the glory of God, and then two, the will of God to be done on the earth, in our lives. In John chapter 16, teaching on prayer, Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father, there's that whatever language, whatever you ask of the Father, but then he qualifies it. He says, whatever you ask of the Father, in my name, he will give it to you. When Jesus says the words, in my name, he isn't intending for you to believe that his name is kind of this magic password that unlocks the spiritual realities of blessings. To pray in the name of Jesus simply means to pray under his authority and to pray in accordance with his will. It's not a magic word. Later, excuse me, earlier in the book of John, he's basically says the same thing. He says, whatever you ask, again, the same whatever language, in my name, this I will do. But this time he says something else. He says, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So the reason why Jesus answers our prayers when we pray in the name of Jesus is so that the Father will be glorified. The first two lines of the Lord's Prayer are coming together right here, right? Father, hallowed be your name, glorified the name here. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There are, these are the kinds of prayers that Jesus answers. Prayers that are in line with his will. Well, what is the will of the Jesus? You see, what, what is the will of Jesus? You see it right here. It's that the Father would be glorified. So, practical application time. When you pray, do you ever stop and ask yourself, 
is this in line with God's will? Do you ever stop and ask yourself, am I praying selfish prayers for my own sinful, carnal desires? Friends, to pray for the will of God in our lives makes the most sense out of the reality of the gospel and our conversion. Isn't conforming our will to God's will at the heart of what it looks like to be a Christian? Before Christ, we were lost, we were dead in our sins, and our wills were slaves to Satan. Our will was dead. It was bound to our sin. It was bound to Satan. It was bound to our own corrupt desires. But then Christ came and he gave us a new heart. He took out our heart of stone. He gave us a heart of flesh. And not only that, he put his Holy Spirit in us. And his Spirit lives in our hearts. And he teaches us to obey God's word and his law. Not only to obey, but to love. And so as Christians, in the process of sanctification, we see that our will slowly begins to conform to God's will. Our desires slowly begin to conform to God's desires. The things that we hate begin to be the things that God hates. And then we find that we slowly start to love the things that God loves. And it happens more and more as we continue to follow Christ. We begin to pray prayers like this. Our prayer life begins to reflect our inner sanctification. As a young baby Christian, you might pray for all sorts of sinful and carnal things. But as your sanctification progresses, you begin to pray more in line with God's will. Even when it's hard. Even if it means that you may not be healed. Even if it means that you will suffer greatly. Even if it means that you will be killed. You see, Jesus was about to die. He was about to be killed. And he prayed. And he cried out to God in the Garden of Gethsemane. He said this, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. You can raise a mountain up and cast it into the sea. I believe it. All things are possible. You can do whatever you want to do. You are an all-powerful God. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Remove this pain. Remove this suffering. Remove what I'm about to have to go through. I know you can do it. It's possible. I believe in you. I have faith. And then he says, yet not what I will, but what you will. Which means that it may not be the will of the Father that Jesus is removed from this suffering. And if Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, prays prayers like this, brothers and sisters, how much more should we pray like this? So pray big prayers. Pray massive, impossible prayers. Recognize that God is capable of doing anything and everything He so desires. And then ask him to remove cups from your life if you need to, if you want to. But qualify those prayers by recognizing that that cup being removed from your life may not be in line with his will. You see, friends, the cup was not removed from Jesus. He asked for it, but then he died on a cross. If God, who loved his son so much, did not remove the cup from him, what makes you think that he's obligated to remove the cup from you? When Jesus was teaching his disciples about prayer, John, one of his disciples, would have likely been present. Well, that same John who heard Jesus say these things about prayers, he also wrote about prayer later in his life. In the epistle of 1 John, chapter 5, we read... John's teaching on prayer. And it goes like this. And this is the confidence that we have towards him. That if we ask anything, anything, according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. He hears us when we pray but he hears us when we pray prayers according to his will. 
And if we pray prayers according to his will, we have every good reason to believe that he hears us and he will answer us. Friends, the prosperity gospel preachers, they teach you to pray for your will, but Jesus teaches you to pray for his will. Your flesh compels you to pray for your will to be done on the earth, but the Spirit of God compels you to pray for the will of the Lord to be done. The world is teaching you to pray for your own selfish desires. But Jesus teaches you to pray, Father, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Satan wants us to pray for carnal ambitions. But Jesus wants us to pray for spiritual things that matter eternally. Okay, I think we're still on the same page. I think my arguments from Scripture hopefully have convinced us that when we pray for whatever we want, that we're supposed to pray for that which is in line with the will of God. But this truth may leave some of us scratching our heads. Some of you may be asking, okay, great, I'm supposed to pray the will of God. But how can I know the will of God? Well, that's a ball of yarn that I don't have time to untangle in this sermon today. But I do want to hit you with a couple of high points, a couple of bullet points to help you think about the will of God. Number one, trying to find the will of God in your life is more of a pagan concept than a Christian concept. The reason why is, number two, friends, God has already revealed his will to us. And he's revealed it to us in the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ, and in his word. Number three, the medium through which God has revealed his will to us is his word. Number four, the way that God helps us to understand His will that He has revealed in His Word is in the life of the church, in the Spirit-empowered teaching, particularly of the elders who have been given to the church by God to teach God's Word, but also through the Spirit-empowered teaching of the one another discipleship that takes place in the life of the church, where we are told to speak the truth to one another in love and rebuking, exhortation, encouragement, etc., Number five, if ever in doubt, here's a list of things that we can know for certain are God's will for us. You see, brothers and sisters, the Lord has not revealed to us, and he may not reveal to you specifically whether or not you should go to this college or that college, whether you should wear your great gray sweater to the job interview with a red tie or the black sweater with the blue tie. But he has certainly revealed his will for your life. You see, it's the will of God that you repent of sin. It's the will of God that you trust in Christ, that you obey his word, that you love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, that you love the church like Christ loves her, that you live your life with the ultimate purpose of glorifying Christ, that you grow in holiness, that you love your neighbor, that you suffer and take up your cross as his disciple, that you evangelize the lost, that you disciple your fellow believers. And the list could go on and on. This is God's will for your life. So if you're wondering whether or not the thing that you're praying for is in line with God's will, just ask, is this in line with these sorts of things that God has revealed in his word? We shouldn't just pray these things for ourselves, you know. Corporate prayer is just such a neglected area of thought in the life of the church. But those prayers that I read earlier from the apostles in the New Testament from the disciples of Jesus himself, if you notice, they're not primarily praying about themselves. They're praying for the church. They're praying for their brothers and sisters in Christ. So when we pray, it's a sign of growth in Christian maturity that we begin to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ, that we begin to pray for the church as much as we pray for our own desires, whether they're good desires or carnal. That's one of the reasons why I love to champion the membership packet. That's the reason why I want every single member of this church to have that membership packet right in your Bible so that every day as you read God's word, you can then pray for God's people. You can open it up and just see one or two people every day and you can just pray for them. You know, Will, Jackie, I'm praying for your marriage. I know first year of marriage is supposed to be the hardest thing in the world. Let me see what I read in my scripture this morning and pray it for you. Russell, brother, I know that Catherine is suffering and it's hard to serve. Uh, so, brother, I'm praying for you. BJ, I know that you're new here, brother. I'm going to pray that you adapt well to this church. 
we're, we're praying for other people, not just ourselves. Very important. Now, there's more to what Jesus is teaching us about prayer this morning than this whole literal versus hyperbole debate. And there's even more here than the whatever language and the language of praying in God's will, although that's very important. You see, Jesus says that there's something else important if you want to have an effective prayer life. There are two things, in fact, that are important if you want to have a, an effective prayer life. So what I'm going to do here is I'm going to kind of give you part two of the sermon, sermon 2.0. You can consider this like a little mini-sermon, a sermon within a sermon. And here's the, the thesis statement for this sermon. There are two things that we need in order to have healthy prayer lives, faith and forgiveness. There are two things that we need to have in order to have healthy prayer lives, faith and forgiveness. Let's look at faith. As Jesus begins this lesson in prayer, he says, have faith in God. And then the next verse, he basically just says the opposite. He says, don't doubt in your heart. Look at verses 22 and 23. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Now, we've already qualified this teaching of Jesus to death, so we're not going to do that anymore. But one of the things that I think is really important for us to get from this text, for us to walk away from the sermon with, is a good understanding of what faith is. I can't tell you how many times I've sat in on a sermon where a pastor preaches and commands us, rightfully so, that we have to have faith. But he doesn't tell us what faith is. What is faith? It's one of those words that I think we all assume what it means because our grandparents used to know what it means. We may not. So here's a good little pocket-sized definition of faith. A theologian could quibble with this, and they'd certainly want to add more to it. But if you just want to take this and put it in your pocket and walk away with it, here's your definition of faith. Faith is trusting in God's words. Faith is trusting in God's words. Faith is believing God and taking Him at His word. What this means is, brothers and sisters, is that we can put our trust in something, and if God has not promised it to us, if God has not revealed it to us, it is not faith. So you can say that you have faith for that new Mercedes, or for the husband with the eight-pack of abs and the big, beautiful smile with a bunch of money in the bank. You can pray and have faith for that cancer healing. And you should. But you should also know that if, if God has not promised you that thing specifically, then your trust is not the same thing as faith. Faith is trusting in what God has revealed. The opposite of faith is doubt. Doubt is when we fail to trust in what God has revealed when we fail to trust in God's promises. That's why it's so important to understand what we talked about already, that if, if what you're praying for is not in line with God's will, then you have no reason to believe. If we pray our prayers in line with God's will, we have every reason to trust that God will hear us and He will bring our prayers to pass. Faith is believing that God's speech is the same thing as God's action. It's believing that if God has said it, it's already as good as done. And that's the reason why in the New Testament, when you see people like Paul writing about salvation in Romans chapter 8, you see that he's saying things like, all those who are justified are glorified. He's talking about it like it's already done. All those whom he predestined, he called, and all those whom he called, he justified, and all those whom he justified, he glorified. He's using past tense language. Why? Because when the Lord wills it, it will certainly come to pass. And faith on our part is when we trust those things to be true. Number two, forgiveness. Look at verse 25. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you of your trespasses. 
Doesn't this teaching about forgiveness feel awkward right here? Doesn't it feel a little out of place? What does forgiveness have to do with prayer? I mean, we just got through talking about faith and believing and not doubting, and now we're kind of switching gears and taking a hard right turn talking about forgiveness. Feels a little weird. Uh, Let me take a little moment aside and just tell you that if you read your Bibles often enough, you'll have this experience uh, more often than you might imagine. You'll be reading and you'll come to something in the scriptures and it won't necessarily make sense to you on first glance or fourth glance. Let me just encourage you, when you come to something in the text that feels clunky or awkward, to just go ahead and assume that it's probably you who's not reading the text correctly rather than you know, the idea that it's Jesus who doesn't know how to teach or the disciples who aren't writing well. Okay. So what does forgiveness have to do with prayer? Well, it has everything to do with it. Everything. You see, prayer, brothers and sisters, is how we approach God. Whether we're praising God or thanking God or confessing to God, prayer is how we communicate with the Father. And it's a miracle. The transcendent yet imminent God of the universe invites us to communicate with him. He allows it. He doesn't just allow it, he encourages it. He doesn't just encourage it, he commands it. He doesn't just command it. He orchestrates everything that happens in the life of this world so that it works in such a way that they are influenced by the prayers of the saints. Consider that. But there is a barrier to this communion with God. And it keeps us from communicating with the Father like we should. The barrier is called sin. It's our rebellion against God. It's when we fall short of the glory of God. When we were lost and dead in sin, we cut off our communication lines with God. Think about it like this. When the citizens of a kingdom rebel against the king and they take up arms against the capital, does the king want to receive communication from the people about their medical needs or their food shortage issues or their economic crises? No. When the citizens of the kingdom take up arms to rebel against the king, The king only wants to hear one thing from them in communication. Their unconditional surrender. And that's what happens with us, brothers and sisters, when we repent of our sins and when we turn away from our rebellion, we throw down our arms and we surrender to the king. We say we give up. And we have our lines of communication reopened to us. And God graciously forgives us and he invites us to make our needs known to him. Forgiveness of sins is what opens up the lines of communication, the lines of prayer between us and God. And you know how this Christian life works, right? Anything that you receive from God, you're not supposed to just keep for yourself. So if you receive the gospel of God's grace, you're not meant to be a hoarder of that grace. You're meant to give it to someone else and share the gospel with them. If someone disciples you with the truth of God's word, you're not supposed to hoard that truth in your heart just kind of adding to your own little collection of spiritual nuggets, you're meant to take somebody else who's newer in the faith than you or more immature in the faith than you and disciple them with the truth of God's word. If God has shed his love abroad in our hearts, we're supposed to take that love that God has given us vertically and give it out horizontally. Well, the same thing is true about our sins and forgiveness. God has been gracious to us in Christ. He has forgiven us of our sins. When we forgive others of their sins, we are picturing the gospel to the world. But when we refuse to forgive, we're preaching an anti-gospel. God has freely forgiven us in Christ. How is it possible that we can hold grudges and unforgiveness against our brothers and sisters? How is it possible that we can cling tight and hold their sins against them? doesn't make any sense. And I think that that's why Jesus tells us that we must forgive if we want to be heard by God. Not only that, but that we must forgive if we want to be forgiven. The, the Father will not forgive us of our trespasses, 
if we are being grace hoarders, failing to forgive those who have sinned against us. Now, to be clear, I don't think Jesus is saying that there's a tit-for-tat relationship with us and God the Father. You know, we do and then God does. I think if we are in Christ, our salvation and our forgiveness is secured. It was secured 2,000 years ago on Calvary. The thing is, we may be confused about whether or not we're even Christians. You see, friends, if we withhold forgiveness from others, it's quite possible that we ourselves have not been forgiven. If we withhold grace from others, it's quite possible that we have never received grace from God. And when we act like this, we cut off the lines of communication between us and the Father. But the good news is it's so easy to reopen these lines of communication. All you have to do is forgive. Stop holding the grudge. Who are you holding a grudge against this morning? Who are you unwilling to forgive? You know, for some of us, we have a hard time forgiving even the tiniest things. Maybe our roommate opened our mail, and for some reason we just can't let it go. Maybe somebody, your wife or your husband, said something to you during the week. You don't even remember what they said, but it got under your skin and you can't let it go. Maybe somebody broke the dashboard of your truck. Maybe, maybe you're holding on to something more profound. Maybe somebody has sinned against you in such a way that you think that the sin that you've experienced doesn't deserve to be forgiven. You think that your, your sin that you're holding that somebody's committed against you is in an entirely different category that says, I'm not required to forgive people for this. Maybe somebody took advantage of you for a large sum of money and drained you of all of your life savings. Maybe somebody cheated on you, your husband or your wife, and you just can't forgive them. You just can't. You just can't stop thinking about it. You can't not hold it against them. Maybe you were sexually abused as a child. And you say, oh, I'll forgive anybody, anything, but I'm not going to forgive him. Let me share a story with you. There was a young girl who grew up in what appeared to be a normal family, at least initially. But she was regularly molested by her grandfather. Nobody knew. Later, her parents were divorced, and her mother married a new man. The girl's stepfather also molested her. When the girl finally worked up the courage to tell her mother about it, the stepfather beat her to a bloody pulp. Child services got involved, and once they got all the facts, they gave the mother of this girl two choices. You can keep your daughter, or you can keep your husband, but they can't both be in this house. The mother chose her husband over her daughter, and she let the daughter be taken away by the state. This girl spent the latter part of her adolescence in a children's home because of the sin of her mother and her stepfather. At the age of 18, this girl was saved by God. She became a Christian. This girl is now 31 years old, and she has spent the last 13 years of her life trying to rebuild a relationship with her mother because by God's grace, she found the power to forgive her. Not only that, but she has forgiven the man that abused her as well. Both of them. I know the details of this story so intimately because that woman is my wife. So when I stand here and I tell you that you must forgive, I want you to know how hard that is. I want you to know that I understand. I know what's been done to you. It's been done to me. It's been done to many of us. But we have to forgive. Because, brothers and sisters, there's nothing that has been done to you that is even within a million miles of what we have done to God in our rebellion. There is no sin that has been committed against us that is anywhere near as severe as the sin that we have committed against the God who loved us the God who made us. 
our sins were so severe that the only way to forgive us was for God to come down himself and to die on the cross for us. He himself had to bear the wrath for our sins on the cross. That's how severe our sins were. If you're having trouble forgiving others, is it possible that you have not been forgiven? If you're having trouble forgiving others of their sins, is it possible that maybe you don't understand how sinful you are? One of the things that happens when we've been victimized by sin is we begin to see ourselves as the hero of the story. We begin to see ourselves as the pure ones who were tainted by sin. But the doctrine of sin that we find in the Bible says that that's just not true, brothers and sisters. We are evil and contemptible in God's sight. We are wretched in our sin, and other wretched sinners have sinned against us. We were not pure white rags that were stained by other people's sins. Is it possible that you don't understand the radical nature of forgiveness that's found in the gospel? If so, I want to invite you, even now, to taste of that forgiveness. If you're holding somebody's sin against them, it's killing you, it's not killing them. It's harming you. It's not harming them. Forgive them. Well, what about justice? God is a God of justice, my friends. He will repay every evil. It's a promise. You are not the one who brings justice on this earth. You should have had justice brought against you. You are meant to forgive. So forgive so that you can freely receive God's forgiveness. Trust that God has made a way for you to be forgiven in Christ. And then pray and ask God to forgive you of your sins. Ask God to pick up the mountain of your sin and to cast it into the sea of forgetfulness. And when you pray this prayer, brothers and sisters, believe that God has done it. Do not doubt. Believe that you have received this forgiveness and it will be yours. Let's pray. Father, if your spirit is at work in the heart of any believer in this room, I pray that you would grant them your radical grace, the grace to forgive and the grace to be forgiven. And help us as your children to not, forget, to not forget these truths. To be ready to quickly extend forgiveness to all who sin against us, but especially those of the household of faith. So that our prayers may not be hindered. So that there may be unity and love in the life of this church. And so that your name may be glorified on earth as it is in heaven. We pray this in the name of your son Jesus. Amen.